too often it is a text of the Bible that we feel that we have to spend all of our time explaining because of how often it is misused. But tragically, taking all of our time to do that takes away from one of the most beautiful statements of grace found anywhere in the Bible. When Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. I want you to turn back to Luke chapter 23. That text was read a few moments ago, and we're going to be looking at that text this morning. Those words that Jesus said to one of the criminals, one of the thieves who was on a cross beside him, were an absolute gift. They were filled with the grace that can only be ascribed to God. The words themselves are nothing short of remarkable. And it's important for us to remember that there were no accidents in the life of Jesus Christ. Everything that he said, everything that was done around him had been foretold. If you were to count up all the prophecies concerning Jesus in the Old Testament, they number over 300. And some of them are grand, huge details, while others seem to be almost minute, almost unimportant details. While, of course, we know they're not unimportant, it would almost seem that way until you take the full picture. And even the fact that Jesus was crucified along with those who were, well, let's just say not exactly the best of society, even that had been foretold in the Old Testament. Because 700 years before Jesus ever came on the scene, Isaiah had said in Isaiah chapter 53, that suffering servant chapter, Isaiah 53, 12 said, he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, if we were writing this story, if we were talking about the unfolding of God's plan, we would have prophesied and then had something come about that might say he was numbered with the elites of society. Or he was numbered with the scholars. Or even he was numbered among the great rabbis, the great teachers. We would not have said he was numbered with the transgressors. And yet, as Jesus goes through all those events surrounding the cross, leading up to and surrounding the cross, Isaiah 53 unfolds before our eyes, including he was numbered with the transgressors. And you remember that the events that happen on the cross unfold in a way that's pretty remarkable. We read from Luke chapter 23, but Matthew tells us that in the first moments on the cross, both of the criminals, one on Jesus' left and one on Jesus' right, both of them were railing against him, throwing insults his way. We don't know exactly what they said, at least the full text of what they said, but they were saying the same things that were being said around the cross. He saved others, can he not save himself, and go ahead and come, all those sorts of things. We're certain that they were saying those types of things. But something changed at least for, for one of the criminals, something changed. I've wondered what it is that led this one criminal to cry out to Jesus on the cross for forgiveness or to remember him when he came into his kingdom. It could be nothing more than simply seeing what Jesus was doing on the cross. 
Remember that it had been prophesied, again, Isaiah chapter 53, that as a lamb before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was not going to argue with what was going on. And here, these two criminals, we can, we can assume, I believe, at least early on on the cross, might have been crying out, we don't deserve this, or, or what's going on here? But this man was saying nothing. Or it could be something he did say. Remember, this is the second time that Jesus spoke from the cross, at least as we have it recorded in the Bible. And the first that we looked at last Sunday night. Who in their right mind would ever in this situation say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Don't you think that at least struck a chord with this one criminal? That whether he believed fully in Jesus or not yet, that at least he had to wonder, who says that sort of thing? When they're going through and had been going through all the things leading up to the cross, who would ever say something like that? Maybe it's that. Maybe it's something that happened earlier in life. We can only speculate, but Jesus had a certain level of fame, even though that wasn't what he was seeking. And it is possible, again, speculation, but it's possible that these thieves had seen or heard Jesus teach or heal before, or at the very least had heard of him, for his fame was all over the place. Or maybe it's something even earlier than that. Because you remember when John the Baptist was having his ministry as the forerunner of Christ, we're told that all in Judea and Jerusalem were coming out to him. Is it not at least possible that these thieves had heard John speak? And now one of the thieves is putting all of that together as these events are unfolding on the cross. I don't know if it's any one of those four, a combination of those four, or frankly something else. But something changed for this one thief, this one criminal. And in that moment, he makes one of the great requests to the Bible. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus had every right to respond by saying simply, no. He had every right to respond by simply saying, you're getting what you deserve. Jesus had every right to respond by saying, I I don't believe in these 11th hour confessions. Forget that. Jesus had every right to say, it's my prerogative to say yes and no, and right now I'm not feeling like saying yes, so forget about it. That's absolutely within the right of Jesus to say. He had the power to forgive sins while he was here on the earth. Did he not? He had already done it many times. And so he had the right also to not forgive sins if he so chose. But in this moment, Jesus offered the great gift of forgiveness, the great gift of paradise. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I want us for a few minutes this morning to notice three applications that come from that one statement. And by the way, before we look at those three, this is actually a Sunday night sermon, but you have to come back tonight too. <laughs> we, Tyler and I have been preaching on Sunday evenings through series, and we're preaching through the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross in November and December. And we had all these sermons laid out, and then one of our missionaries called and said, hey, can I come report in November? So we're sliding one of the sermons up to a Sunday morning so we can stay within the November-December framework, but also so that maybe you hear something this morning and you think, hey, I kind of like the way they're doing these things, these series, so maybe you'll start coming some more on Sunday night to hear those things as well. We'll continue tonight with Behold Your Son and Behold Your Mother, but that's why we're kind of preaching a Sunday night sermon on Sunday morning. 
It's simply because of a, a scheduling quirk. But I want us to think about three applications. Three things that were true when Jesus said these words to the thief or the criminal, but three things that also continue to be true today. Number one, I want you to notice that the gift that Jesus gave to this thief was personal. Jesus did not say these words to everyone who was standing there on that day, nor did he say them even to both of the others who were hanging on crosses on that day. Jesus said these words in a very personal way. Now remember, Jesus had already prayed for the Father to forgive the sins of all of those who were standing around, frankly, enjoying what was going on that day. But these words were not public. These were not those kinds of words. Jesus made it personal. To receive forgiveness, we must request it. And we must do those things necessary to show that we are penitent, that we are really repenting. And obviously, in this moment, those who were crying for the blood of Christ and those who were happy with what was going on, obviously, in that moment, they were not penitent because of what they were done. Now, parenthetically, let me say that, thankfully, 47 days later, quite a few of them were because they realized what they had done. But in this moment, they weren't. And so Jesus was not saying, everybody standing around on this day, today you're going to be with me in paradise. But this criminal, this thief, was willing to speak when very few, almost none, others would. It was his individual decision to say or to do what was right in the moment that led to this great statement, this great statement of a gift. And so the gift that Jesus gave then was personal. These words were not meant for everybody. They were meant for the one who spoke when very few others would. Burton Kaufman, in his commentaries on the New Testament, gives five things about this statement of the criminal that stand in contrast, four of them, to others on that day and one of them to people even today. I want to just read his list. I've reworded them a little bit, but I want to give him the credit. He said, number one, the criminal believed on the Lord at a time when even many of the disciples had forsaken the Lord and had fled away from him. Now, John, by this time, had probably returned, but basically everybody else was gone, or at least very far back in the crowd. Two, he says that the criminal believed enough to notice, call him Lord, even while others were hurling insults at Jesus. Three, he said the criminal made this very bold statement, even though he was in a very vulnerable position. He was in a position of humiliation. If you studied crucifixion at all, you know that the people who were being crucified were stripped down sometimes completely naked and very often to very little. Everything about it was meant to be shameful. And yet here he was willing to make a bold statement, despite the fact that everything else about what was going on was shameful. For, he said, this thief made a great statement in the midst of the enemies of Christ's greatest triumph, or at least so they thought. And then number five, he says that today many fail to confess Christ, even though it's quite easy to do so, while the criminal confessed Christ while it was humiliating to do so. I think that's a very important list for us to remember. This was not just a criminal trying to make some sort of deathbed confession. It was very difficult for this man to say these words, considering everything else that was going on in the moment. And in light of all of that, Jesus made this great statement of grace. The other thief, the other criminal, who, by the way, maybe was a co-worker, maybe a co-conspirator, maybe even a family member for all we know, 
he was not told these words by Jesus. Those standing around the cross were not privy to this personal gift. This gift was only granted to the one willing to speak for Christ. I think there is a very important takeaway from that for us even today. I read somewhere one time that heaven does not have a group plan. That's a pretty good way of wording it. It is very important for us to have others around us who help us in our Christian walk. One of the reasons we try to strengthen homes is for that reason. We, we want Christian homes. We sing the song sometimes, God give us Christian homes. And, and we want homes that, that make sure where, where father and mother and children are, are trying to raise up children. That's very important. But folks, I'm not going to go to heaven just because mommy and daddy brought me when I was a kid. That's just not the way it's going to work. It's very important for us to try to, to have Christian friends. And one of the reasons we try to help our young people be involved in the youth program is because they're developing friendships that will help them through a difficult time of life. But folks, I'm not going to go to heaven just because I was, quote, unquote, in the youth group. That's not what's going to get me in. I'm not going to go to heaven just because I live in America and it's supposed to be some sort of Christian nation. Is it a helpful thing? Yes. But am I going to get to heaven just because of that? Of course not. And folks, I'm not going to go to heaven just because I walk through the doors of a church building from time to time. There's not a group plan. I must individually be willing to state and live to the statement that I believe in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, God individually, personally, grants the great gift of forgiveness. These other things are helpful and extremely important. Don't don't take away that they're not important. They're extremely important. But I will not be at home in heaven Because I've got the right connections. I'll be in heaven because I made a decision. And I'm so thankful God individually forgave me. And I live striving to honor that forgiveness. The gift that Christ gave was personal. Number two, I want you to notice that the gift that Christ gave was guaranteed. Twice in this statement. Jesus used words that make it clear that this was more than just some you know, off-the-cuff statement that might come true or might not come true. First, he begins that little word truly or verily. We might use the word assuredly. And also, notice every translation you've got, no matter what you've got in front of you, either uses the word will or shall. Today, you will or you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus did not say you could be. He didn't say it's a possibility. This is as clear as day. This is a guarantee. This is a promise from God. And God fulfills all of his promises. Today, truly today, you will be with me in paradise. And here's where we must enter the controversy. Because some say, you see, right there, right there, is a case where someone is saved in the New Testament Without being baptized. I mean, I don't know a whole lot about the Bible, but I remember when I was a kid and I went to Sunday school or I went to vacation Bible school and they tried to teach me the books of the Bible. I remember them saying that the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we sang that little song that has the books of the New Testament. And the first four are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're reading from Luke. So here's someone in the New Testament who was saved outside of being baptized, without being baptized. How do we answer that? Well, there's two possible answers. One speculative and one very clearly taught in Scripture. The speculative answer is, who says this man was never baptized? Remember, all Jerusalem and Judea were going out to John to be baptized, and John preached a baptism unto repentance of sins. So it's at least possible 
that this man had been baptized earlier in, in his life. Now, it's, again, that's speculative, but it's at least worthy of entering into the conversation. But, folks, if that were never even a part of the conversation, one of the things we must always keep in mind is that little page in your Bible that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. Remember that the book of Hebrews tells us what is it that brings about the fulfillment of a testament. It is the death of the testator, the one who makes the testament. And I don't want to say this in a way that makes it like I'm making fun of people who believe this. But, folks, it's a logical thing. Jesus was not dead yet. The Old Testament law had not been taken out of the way yet. Jesus had every right to say, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And, again, I don't want to say anything in a a crass way, but Jesus did not have to say, After you get down off this cross and be baptized. Because that wasn't necessary yet. However, when Jesus was raised from the dead, after he had died, putting in place, or excuse me, putting to death the old law, Colossians tells us, and bringing about the new law, the New Testament, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 20, Romans chapter 6, Galatians chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, all of them, after the death and resurrection of Christ, tell us to be saved, one must be baptized. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, and Peter all wrote about it, and Jesus said it after his resurrection. There is no question about it. And so it's not a matter of comparing the way in which I am saved to the thief on the cross. However, There is a beautiful comparison to the assurance of salvation to the one who follows the plan of God, to the thief on the cross. This man, for whatever reason, was willing to state that he believed this man was Lord. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all it took. And Jesus granted that fantastic gift. He guaranteed it. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, the New Testament does not tell us that once a person is saved, that person is always saved. But the New Testament does tell us that if a person is baptized and if a person walks in the light, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, they are guaranteed heaven. I must continue to walk in the light. It is conditional as far as making sure I live faithfully. But if I do, folks, as a Christian, I don't have to walk around going, well, I sure hope I make it to heaven. You're going to heaven? I don't know. You're going to heaven? Boy, it would be nice. Folks, you going to heaven? Yes! If I've been baptized for the forgiveness of my sins, and I'm doing my best to walk in the light, am I going to heaven? Yes, I am. The gift is guaranteed. And God will not remove it if I walk in the light. Aren't you thankful for that? That we don't have to live our life on pins and needles all the time. We should strive to do what's right. And if we fail, we should repent and make sure we reorient our life towards God. But folks, the gift is guaranteed to the faithful. Number three, I also need to remember from this text that the gift was wonderful. Notice that Jesus chose the word paradise. There are very few words more beautiful than that. Now, this is not, I don't believe this is heaven itself. Remember that after his resurrection, 
Jesus said in John chapter 20 and verse 17, I have not yet ascended to the Father. But obviously he had died, but he had not yet gone to where the Father is, to heaven. But this criminal was with him. Jesus said, today you will be with me, today, in paradise, that day. So Jesus went to the place that we often call paradise. It's the waiting place for those who are preparing to enter heaven. And it's beautiful. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it's referred to as Abraham's bosom, a place of rest and comfort and beauty. Folks, I don't think we can even conceive of how wonderful and beautiful heaven really will be. But I also don't think we can grasp even the first thought of just how wonderful even the waiting place for heaven will be. We will know at that point where we will spend eternity. And while we'll still have to stand before Christ in judgment, the book of Philippians tells us that, for those who have already died when Jesus returns, judgment day is much more like sentencing day. They know where they're going. But the Bible tells us they must appear before Christ to hear that sentence of either depart from me or enter into the joys of your Lord. It's on that day that those who are faithful will hear the words that they have longed to hear for their entire life. Well done. Good and faithful servant. And it's possible, by the way, that this thief got more than he was even asking for. The gift that he received was maybe even more wonderful than he even thought. Have you ever noticed what he asked for and then what Jesus said? The criminal asked, remember me when you come into your paradise? That's not what he said, is it? Your kingdom. It is at least possible that this criminal believed what a whole lot of other people believed that jesus was going to establish a literal earthly kingdom to overthrow the roman government by the way a lot of people believed that even until jesus was about to go right back into heaven didn't they because remember even as jesus is about to ascend back into heaven in acts chapter one the ones who were standing there said lord will you at this time Restore the kingdom? In other words, they still thought this earthly kingdom thing was going to happen and maybe Jesus was going back to heaven and then coming back again. I don't know. It's sad that a lot of people still believe that. That Jesus is going to establish a literal earthly kingdom in the literal city of Jerusalem and so a literal throne in that city. It is very possible that's what the thief was asking. And folks... That would have been a great gift, wouldn't it? If Jesus really did set up an earthly kingdom to be remembered in that kingdom, it would seem with some level of prominence or some position within that kingdom, that would be a great gift, wouldn't it? But what did Jesus turn around and give him? He didn't say, oh, yes, when I set up my kingdom, you can be fill-in-the-blank position. No, today you will be with me, not in my kingdom, in paradise. Think of it this way. What Jesus basically said to this thief was, I know what you're asking, and I'm giving you something far greater than you can imagine. I don't know what you think heaven is going to be like. I know what the end of the Bible talks about. I know that description in the last couple of chapters of Revelation. I know about the street of gold and the, the gates of pearl and, and, and all that. I, I get that. And I love that description. 
But I also know that the Bible tells me that God can do anything exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. Now put those two concepts together. However wonderful you think heaven will be, you can't imagine how wonderful it's going to be. The gift that God gives is even more amazing than we might think. But folks, if it wasn't just for how it's going to look or feel or whatever, the gift is wonderful because none of us deserves it. And yet God still offers it and makes it this wonderful place. It's a wonderful gift. And that's not a strong enough word. It's just the best one I could think of, frankly, to try to describe it. It's better than anything we could possibly think about. You know, sometimes sometimes I think we try to think a little bit like this thief might have been thinking. Sometimes we, we present Christ in only a this-world way. And here's what I mean. Sometimes we only present Christ with, if you come to Jesus, he'll improve your marriage. Or if you follow the the, the, the teachings of Scripture, it will help you with financial decisions. Or if you come to Christ, it will make you a better employer or a better employee. Or, or it will help you as a parent. Now, are those things true? Yes, those things are true. But folks, Jesus did not come to this earth just to clean us up here. He came to give us a gift. We can't imagine how wonderful it is. It's an eternal gift. And it's a gift none of us deserve. You know, I could could read all kinds of books and articles and talk to people and figure out how to be a better husband or a better father or a better preacher or a better employee without ever really looking at Scripture. I, I I could get some of that advice there. But I can't go to heaven. I can't know what paradise really is until I come to the cross. Does Jesus still offer that gift? Yes. But folks, I have to take it. Maybe you've got a someone in your family with a birthday upcoming. And, and you, you buy them a present. Or maybe they, they live far away, so you, so you mail them a present. And they call you a couple days later, and they say, thank you for the present. Thank you for sending that. And, and you respond and say, did you like it? How would you feel if they responded and said, I don't know, I hadn't opened it? How do they know what it is? How do they know what the benefits of whatever this is would be? Unless they actually unwrap the package and open it and see how great it is. That's the way it is with the gift that Christ offers through what he did on the cross. He told that thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Listen, in many ways, when a faithful Christian dies... That's still what Jesus says. But only if we unwrap the gift 
whoever believes and is baptized will, did you notice the word? Will be saved. Today, you will, what? You will be with me in paradise. It's time for some people to unwrap the gift. Am I saved like the criminal on the cross? Depends on what you mean by the question. Am I saved in the same manner? No, because I live after the cross, after the death of Christ and his resurrection. We we live in the New Testament times. But am I saved like the criminal on the cross? Yes. If I just do what Jesus says. Despite what anybody else is saying, despite what anybody else is doing, if I am willing to call him Lord, and if you please unwrap the gift through repentance, it is a gift that's personal, it's a gift that's guaranteed, and it's a gift that's wonderful. Who this morning needs to unwrap that gift? Who this morning wants to hear those words on Judgment Day? Well done. Well done. Enter into the joys of your Lord. If it's you, we invite you to come if you stand and sing to encourage.